Hill, so I just need to check, um, Richard and Anthony, am I wearing this right? Is this... <laughs> I, Very smart. Thank you, excellent. I just need to check. It's been a little while. I have, um, I, I've worn it once before, um, just after I got ordained, and I was walking down a, a road in the inner west of Sydney, and I was walking with my wife, holding her hand, and we got this abuse from this Catholic guy. And, and I couldn't figure out what he was saying. Um, he was an Irish Catholic guy, and I, I think what he was saying is, at least keep your mistress in private. Um, and I, anyway... <laughs> I, um, we'll move on. This is um, continuing a series uh, in Zechariah. So we're looking through the eight visions which are given to Zechariah, and they're pretty tricky. Okay, this is a tricky part of Zechariah. Even Zechariah has no idea what's going on for most of this chapter. So let's get into it. As always, I'm going to do this in three parts. Starting, it'd be great to have your Bibles open. Uh, Zechariah chapter four, part one: expensive furniture and renewable energy. Part one. Expensive furniture and renewable energy. So Zechariah's awoken from a dream, and you know this is going to he's woken, sorry, from sleep, and you know this is going to be an important part of the book because the message to us is wake up and pay attention as well. And the bleary-eyed Zechariah is given this vision, I, and uh, the the angel asks, "What do you see?" Verse two: I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it, with seven channels to the lamps. All right, this is sounding a little bit familiar from Leviticus or from um, the, the temple, but this is no ordinary temple lampstand. It's got some supernatural additions. Verse 3, there are also two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So it turns out this lampstand is being fueled continually by a sustainable source of energy. It's connected by pipes directly to the trees, so no one has to come in and fill it up to keep the light of the presence of the Lord going. Right? It's a renewable, sustainable energy. It's very, very impressive, but what does it mean? Right, Zechariah has no idea, he doesn't know, so he asks three questions. What are these, probably referring to the seven, uh, lampstand, seven lamps, what are the two olive trees and what are the uh, two branches of the olive trees? And each time the angel, in answering his questions, sounds perhaps a little bit like an Old Testament lecturer. Do you not know what these are? <laughs> no, my lord. Twice he says that. So the angel finally gives in and explains to Zechariah. Uh, the lamps turn out to be the eyes of the Lord, I think symbolizing his, uh, the Lord's oversight over the world, his political oversight over the, um, the state of play and the political landscape. But the two trees, they're what we're going to focus on today. Verse 14. These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. In other words, if this vision represents the city of Jerusalem, God's people, his special place, then the whole community is being powered, held together by these two olive trees. These olive trees represent two leaders, two anointed ones or two messiahs. Remember, the kings and the priests were, uh, had oil dribbled on them to make them into their role. And these messiahs or these leaders serve the Lord by keeping the temple going and the light of the Lord's presence going. And so the Lord is sustaining his people by these two leaders. And what do you know? They have names. One is Zerubbabel, the governor, and the other is Joshua, the high priest. But I don't know if you noticed, between Zechariah's question and the angel's answer is quite a long and seemingly irrelevant digression. Again, memories of Old Testament class for some of you. Right, so why, why is there this gap between the question and the answer? Well, Old Testament scholars love to get their scissors out and to kind of chop it up and rearrange it. Um, I think actually, um, well, Old Testament scholars aren't very good at telling jokes sometimes because they don't know about tension. They know, don't know about 
timing. I don't think it's a wild tension. I think actually it's creating tension and it's designed to draw our attention to what's in the middle here because we want to know the answer. But before he tells us, he tells us something else. Because there's a problem with one of the trees. There's a problem with one of the trees. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Uh, Last time I spoke on Zechariah, I spoke a little bit about Zerubbabel. Um, He's the last or one of the last of the descendants of King David. Uh, If you're going to rebuild the Davidic temple, helps to have a descendant of David around. He's one of the last ones surviving the exile. And so we need him to rebuild the temple, but he seems to have gone missing in action. Perhaps the Persians sort of wisened up to what he was doing, that maybe he had some ideas about becoming the Davidic king, and the Persians didn't like that. Maybe he was arrested. Anyway, something's happened and things look sketchy, right? You don't have to say, um, Zerubbabel will finish this temple and that's how you know I'm a prophet, unless there's a reason why he might not. It's like me saying Brian Rosner started this, uh, this year as principal of Ridley and he will finish it. Like, well, what's happened to him? It's okay, he's just on long service leave, he's coming back. <laughs> right, but there's got to be a reason why. So we, we talked about that last time, that probably Zerubbabel's gone missing in action. Things look sketchy, things look depressing even. But Zechariah's message is don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. In other words, even a mountainous obstacle like, I don't know, Persia will not frustrate, will not stand in the way of God's plan to bring about the finishing of his temple. But before we get to that vision, that glorious vision of the temple's completion, Zerubbabel needs to learn a lesson. There's a right way to build a temple and there's a wrong way to build a temple. Verse 6, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Here's how I figure Zerubbabel. He's a powerful guy. He's a governor. He's used to getting things done. He's used to bringing about by political intrigue or military power the, the goals which he has. And I reckon it'd be tempting looking at the depressing state of the temple in in his shoes, to want to fix things, to want to bring about the completion of the promises, to to use his resources and his powerful personality. But that's not how it's going to get built. Not power, not resources, not money, not strength. Things may look small and may look disappointing now, but don't be deceived, for whoever has despised, verse 10, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, the day of small things, it's like, it's like the publishers who turned down Harry Potter or the uh, record executives who famously thought the Beatles would never get anywhere. That's that kind of thing, despising the days of small things, not realising that in this small, unassuming thing is a big potential and a big future. It's, it's looking at what God has decreed and saying, that's small, that's nothing, that's never going to come to anything. It's overlooking what God is doing in the world because it doesn't fit our preconceptions. Because sure enough, just as God said through Zechariah, the temple was completed. 516 BC, the temple was dedicated. And that's why Zechariah ended up in the Bible. 
If he'd been wrong about that, we wouldn't be studying him. But even when the temple was completed, it wasn't the end of the story. Because while the temple is rebuilt, the people are not rebuilt. The people haven't learned anything from exile. To make them into the holy nation, the community that will inhabit this temple, no human leader could do that. That's, that's the lesson of the Old Testament. Want to skip Old Testament? That's the lesson. Which brings us to part two, in which God gets involved in person. God gets personally involved. Part two, which I'm calling questionable building methods. Uh, in, this passage, Zechariah, in this passage of Zechariah, there were two messiahs, right, Zerubbabel and Joshua. In the New Testament, there's one messiah. Right? And that's because the New Testament sees the role as pr- of priest and king as united in one person. And so these two um, anointed ones, Joshua and Zerubbabel, are types or shadows. Remember in Old Testament land, we love talking about typology and shadows and stuff. Uh, these two figures are echoes in advance Shadows in advance of this one figure who is to come. And spoiler alert, his name is Jesus. See, his vision for the temple is big, bigger than either Joshua or Zerubbabel could have imagined. And that's why we say sometimes that Jesus is the final and the greater Joshua, the final uh, and greater high priest, the one who offers actually himself once and for all in atonement for sin, giving us the legal right that we saw last time not to have our past haunt us. Uh, Jesus is also, though, the final, greater, best Zerubbabel, the temple builder, who is building a place where God dwells by his spirit, not a building, but a people, a church. Stones gathered from all the different communities around the world into one temple which spans the entire earth and every nation. And yet his building methods are a little bit questionable. At the time, it seemed a little bit sketchy. For instance, Matthew chapter 27, verse 37. Here's Jesus building his temple. Over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They might have said, and then we'll know you're a prophet. But you see, it looks sketchy, but he was actually building his temple. Just not the way they were expecting. Not by might, not by power. Uh, everyone's favourite grumpy Eastern Orthodox philosopher theologian is a guy called David Bentley Hart. He puts it like this. The marvel of Christ is that in a world where power, riches, violence seduce hearts and compel assent. Jesus persuades and prevails not as a tyrant, not as an armed assailant or a man of wealth, but simply as a teacher of God and his love. Not by might, not by power. You see, Jesus never wielded a sword, famously, but he brought the Roman army to its knees. One by one, person by person, heart by transformed heart, and the Spirit brought people from darkness to light. And that work is is continuing today. That's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. We are part of the building which Jesus is building by his Spirit. 
He started it and he will finish it. Which brings us to part three, which is about us. Part three I'm calling a word of caution for construction workers. Um, On the train this morning, early morning train, I was a little bit out of place as normal uh, in my dog collar. Um, I was the only one without a high-vis vest and a toolbox. It's the early train into the city. But actually, I reckon I can claim it. I reckon I am a construction worker. You are too. We all are. Right, because you might not realise it, but we are in the church building industry. All of us. I, I don't just mean like the church planters. I don't just mean the pastors. I mean the Sunday school teachers. I mean the Bible study leaders. I mean the stay-at-home parents. We're all in it. All Christians are part of the edification business, the building up of the church business. And the number one thing you need to remember if you're in the building industry, the church building industry, you need to remember who the, build, who, who the builder is. Jesus started it. He will finish it. I don't know what your picture is of your ministry, what you you hope. Those of you who've come to college and have a a picture for what you'll do afterwards. Maybe some of you want to be the next uh, Tim Keller or Heather Larson or, dare I say it, even Guy Mason. Now, these, some of my closest friends are these people. This is not a bad thing, right? This is not a bad ambition. In itself, we need people like the church needs people like this. But I hope that also more of you will be the next Dave. At least some of you will be the next Dave. You don't know Dave. No one knows Dave. No one's ever going to write a blog post about Dave. No one is ever going to offer Dave a book contract or share tips on how Dave grew his church to a church of a billion in one month. But I hope that many of you will do ministry like Dave. Dave was um, again. You don't know him. You work. Probably no one knows him. Um, he was my first boss when I was at Bible College uh, in my, my placement. Um, I was meant to go take a placement up in a really hip inner city church, but I just felt an unusually strong calling for an Anglican to go out to this church um, instead. And at the last minute, I went there, and Dave's church was it was like this 1970s yellow brick thing, which was meant to be the parish hall, and then when the church, like, flowered and all the money came in, they'd build the actual church building. That never happened. It's still just the church hall building. Um, it's in one of the poorest suburbs in Sydney. Uh, it's 75% public housing, for instance. Anytime, basically, anytime you turn on the news and you hear about a shooting in southwest Sydney, I bet you a cup of Gloria Jean's coffee from the local food court, and that's all there is, <laughs> that it's in his parish. Very poor area, according to the 2016 census. Uh, a grand total of 132 people in the suburb have a university degree. That may be lower now that my wife and I are no longer there. Half of the suburb was born overseas. Vietnam, Lebanon, Iraq. Biggest religion is Islam. And twice as many single-parent families as the national average. Just to give you an idea of the social context. As is always, always the case, uh, these families are headed by women. And men are conspicuously absentee both from family and the church. No one's planting a church in this suburb. No one's planting a church in this suburb. Dave did. I still remember some of these people really vividly. Like, I, I, I love these people. I remember one of the very first guys Dave got me um, meeting up with to read the Bible. And like, I, I literally you know, sat down with him for the first time. You know, normally like, it takes people a while to open up. He's like, Andrew, I think I did the wrong thing. Like, oh, tell me about it. 
Well, last night I went to a brothel and I found a woman that looks like my ex-wife and I slept with her. I think that might have been a mistake. Okay. We'll talk about that. Uh, Pastoring him was just exhausting. It was like one small gospel step forward and then like three or four major arrests or being locked up or whatever backwards. Uh, I remember him ringing me once angry like, Andrew! I got fired from my job. I'm like, okay, there's reasons that could happen, but, you know, what for? He's like, well, they said to me, they said it was for swearing. And I said, I told them that's not true. I don't swear, Andrew. I'm an effing Christian, Andrew. <laughs> he didn't say effing, but I wasn't sure if I could say, anyway, in chapel. <laughs> Pastor Dave, um, he taught me so many things. But he taught me um, prayer has to be a first resort. That was a really big lesson from Pastor Dave. Yes, prayer has to be a first resort. We don't have any other resorts. Secondly, he taught me, um, this is sort of irrelevant, but he taught me like dodging curveballs in public worship. Like, I remember I was leading a service and we took open prayer. <laughs> Danger. This one guy stood up. This is a massive tangent, but whatever. Um, he stood up and he was like, oh, I just want to um, praise the Lord because last night I was being chased by the coppers and then I was running away and then they shot at me, but they missed me and then I got away and I want to praise the Lord. <laughs> Now, just for future reference, if that comes up in your pastoral ministry, page 204 of the prayer book has a prayer for a compassionate and just police force. You'll thank me later. Right, this, I, I give you this just as a flavour. This is, this is hard ministry. It's not sexy ministry. And it was often felt like it was like two steps forward and at best one step backwards. But I'll tell you what, I saw Jesus do something there. I saw Jesus doing something there. I saw generational sin being reversed. You know, like I saw reconciliation happening. Hearts turned to Christ. Old white Anglicans sharing the gospel and teaching ESL for their Muslim neighbours. I think one of the most saddest and, and most beautiful in some ways memory I have of that place was when I went to a funeral and a guy had um, come to the Lord far too late in his life, uh, full of cancer, full of regrets, uh, he met Dave, joined the church, um, got Jesus, um, bought 4,000 Bibles that we still have boxes of there in the storeroom because he just wanted everyone in the suburb to know about Jesus. And he, he died. Um, I went to the funeral um, and I met one of his sons who I'd never met before. And I said to him, what do you say? I said, look, I'm really sorry for your loss. Um, your father was a great guy. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and said, we must have known a different guy. Walked off. And he was right. So he only knew his father before he met Jesus, and I only knew him afterwards. So we did. We knew different people, and that was Dave's church. That was his work. Dave's not going to be speaking at any mecca conferences. Right? He's not a bad preacher, but he's just not. He's not that guy. I think he was though he was a great leader. He was a great. He is, is a great. He's not dead. He's a great pastor. And he moved his family with three young boys out to a very undesirable part of Sydney. Of Sydney, mind you. you know, He's already in Sydney, then he goes to the most undesirable part of it. <laughs> a place that was exhausting, under-resourced, obscure. And by God's grace, we saw incredible things. People saved, people changed. No groundbreaking... Like, it wasn't Tim Kelly, it wasn't bad. There was no groundbreaking exegesis or homiletical acrobatics. There's no might, there's no power. Just the Spirit of God. Spirit powered perseverance, secure in the knowledge that Jesus is the builder. And he started it, 
And he will finish it. And thank God for that. I have a prayer most days that I come into this place, which is that God would raise up more women and men to be Daves. Just like Dave. I hope we'll have our big celebrity, large church people. We need them too. But I hope that we'll have lots and lots of Daves. People who don't despise the day of small things. People who are confident in the word of God. Faithful to Christ. Who love their people. And who know that God is building his church. Jesus is building his church, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. That's my prayer.